We've been reading through the book of Acts all this year on Wednesday nights, and we took a little break last week because we wanted to talk about uh, the power of the cross and the veil being torn wide open, Uh, but tonight I want to get right back into uh, what we've been reading. We've been seeing how the church began, and uh, as I've said so many times, and I'm sure you've, if you haven't got it by now, I don't know. Maybe this is the, the, the straw that will break the camel's back. Maybe this is the one that will break through to you. But uh, when we read this, we can't read this as, a, as if it's a different church, as if it's a different group of people. It is a different group of people in a different culture at a different time. But I'll tell you what's constant about it. The Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit we have today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His body is still his body. And so all that's changed is the culture. Here's good news. They were radically different than their culture. So the good news about it is, while we're we're saying, well, we're in a different time and a different culture, and we do understand that God works within the culture and he works in different ways. However, I don't want you to read this and say, well, it's not as powerful today, or, you know, God just doesn't show show himself in that way, or we can't expect to be moved that way or to, to be led by the Spirit in that way, because these are the promises of God. This is what Jesus said would happen. He said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, he's going to lead you you. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to empower you. He's going to show you things to come. And he didn't put a time limit on that. He didn't say the Holy Spirit's going to do that until, you know, probably about 80, 70, and then he'll stop. He just said, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God that we are the body of Christ. We're the church. And uh, you didn't come just, you didn't just come to church. You are the church and we gathered together. The church is not the building. The church is not an organization. The church is the body of Christ, and you're part of that. So in Acts chapter 6, we're going to start, and um, tonight uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, maybe take it a little bit of a different direction than usual. We're going to talk a little bit about um, God's power, God's grace, God's wisdom working in ways you might not normally associate God's power, wisdom, grace, uh, uh, working with. You might, you might think that, that when God works, it's in a very super hyper-spiritual environment. But the truth is, you're his son, you're his daughter, you're his church, you're part of his body. There's not one second of your life that should be lived outside of the leading of the Holy Spirit, outside of the empowerment of the grace of God. There's not one second of your life that's not spiritual. We might think that when we come to church, that's really spiritual. That's my spiritual time. When I go home and I pray, when I, when I listen to, to certain types of music, or when I get together with other believers, that's my spiritual time. But, you know, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, we've created, and it's mostly in Western thought, and you could trace it, you know, many people would trace it all the way back to Plato, to the, the idea that there are, you know, dual realities, that, that there is a, a higher spiritual reality, and there's, a, there's the, all the other stuff we do. And, and even that idea even has some basis in Scripture. You could, you could work with that and say, I understand that, because there is a spiritual realm and there's a natural realm, right? But what, what happens in... in and Jesus showed us plainly how it worked. He said it in, in the Lord's Prayer. He demonstrated. He said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He walked out. He didn't, you, you didn't see Jesus have a, a work life and a play life. You didn't see Jesus have a work life and a home life. You just saw him have a spiritual life. And everything he did, whether he was fishing, whether he was preaching, whether he was fellowshipping and just eating a meal, 
Whatever he did, it was in fellowship with the Father. He was hearing the Holy Spirit. Whatever he did, he was the same guy. He didn't turn on his spiritual self and, and, and then turn on his just regular old Jack kind of, you know, I, I fit in with you guys. I'm, I'm a good old boy. That didn't happen. He was who he was all the time. The thing is, sometimes it's so easy for us to begin to create two different worlds because we've already been living in that world. We have a work world and a play world. And so, you know, when you get first get born again, you've got things you have to do. That's why you go to work and you do all these things you, you have to do, you can't get out of. And then you got things you want to do and you like to do. And we've kind of created those two separate worlds and they don't usually run into each other. You, you always dream that you'll have a job that you just absolutely love. But the truth is when the clock goes, you usually go home. And so when you first got born again, your time with other believers, your time with the Lord was in that, that category of what I like to do. I like to do this. Nobody's making me. Nobody forced me to come to church. They didn't offer me a paycheck at the door. I just go. Well, maybe after a while, you volunteered for some stuff. You're like, oh, praise God. You know, if I'm part of the body, I want to be acting. I want to be moving. I, I want to be used by God. And so you started volunteering. You started uh, getting involved in different things and saying, I want to serve the Lord. And, and after a while, you got tired and busy. And you really, your heart wasn't in it the way it used to be. So suddenly, what well, you used to classify all this church stuff, all this Christian stuff, used to be in the category of what I want to do. And it started migrating over to the things I have to do. And that's a dangerous place to be. But I would submit to you that you should probably get rid of all those categories. Because once you became born again, even going to work is a mission field. Once you became born again, going to work can be a wonderful thing. Can be an opportunity for God to use you in a great way. So many people think, if God's going to use me, I'm going to have to have a microphone in my hand. Or if God's going to use me, I'm going to have to be on a stage somewhere. If God's going to use me, it's going to have to be in this setting. I'm going to tell you, God wants to use you right now, every day. Every breath you have is worship. He wants to use you at your job. He wants to use you as you're shopping. He wants to talk to you when you're at home. He's not looking for you to give him a section of your life. He asks for the whole thing. God is not asking for, you know, really, I, we, we, we read that tithing is biblical, isn't it? Yes. Tithing is absolutely biblical, and that's, that's the, you know, it's instituted in the Old Testament. It's even referred to in the New Testament as, uh, you know, giving a tenth of what you make to the Lord, right? So we understand that. But can I just dispel a myth here? God doesn't want a tenth of your money. God doesn't want a tenth of you. He wants it all. Yes. You might think he's greedy. He wants everything. I didn't say the church wants all your money. I said God does. You know, so this is not me saying, <laughs> I'll just tell them God wants everything, and they'll sign over their bank account. No. <laughs> I'll tell you, I make the same amount of money no matter how much you give, so it doesn't even matter. The truth is God wants everything. He might not ask you to give everything, but he wants you to be willing to say it's yours. The moment you say give, I'll give. And you know what? The blessing of that is when you don't put these walls up that say this is mine and this is yours, he's able to bless you in those areas. He's able to move in those areas because you've said those are your areas too. Where you let God in, those areas of your life you let God in, if you let him even into the weird little corners of your life, I'm not talking about anything creepy. I just mean the, just the, the stuff you don't even think is spiritual. You let him in those areas. 
you'll find that his presence changes everything. His wisdom changes everything. His grace changes everything. His anointing changes everything. And if you let him in and say, it's all yours, every part of my life, your life will never be the same again. I want to read something from the book of Acts, and we'll start in chapter 6, where we left off a couple weeks ago. So let me give you a little bit of background. How many of you have been here the past few weeks as we've been reading through the book of Acts? You've been here a few other times. As we read, one of the results of the Holy Spirit just filling them up and just transforming the church was that the Bible says, and it says it in Acts 2, and that goes and reaffirms it in Acts 4, that everybody was sharing everything. Nobody said anything was his or hers. They all said it's ours. And then something really awesome happened. It says there was not one poor or needy person among them. Now, I said this before, but just, you know, adopting, if you think they just adopted a form of communism, let me tell you, we've seen throughout history, as I've said many times before, we've seen throughout history, communism doesn't, doesn't turn everybody into rich people. It kind of makes more poor people than it does well off. This isn't communism. This is, this is people freely saying, everything I have is yours. And if I say everything I have is yours, I can't look at my brother who doesn't have something and say it's not his. So all these believers were holding things in common, and the Lord was on it. His favor was on it. His hand was on it. So nobody was needy. Nobody was poor. That's an amazing thing. They were just, there was such a grace on their life to, to say, God, all we have is yours. And so because of this, um, they had actually developed, because, you know, if you're a widow in, our, in today's society, if you're a, you're a lady that's lost her husband, um, and I'm going to use that purely because in the context here, um, this is relevant. It was, it was not men that lost their wife, but it was wi wives that lost their husbands. In that culture, see, today you could still get another job. You could get government assistance, all of these things. But in that day and age, if you were a widow, and your husband died. Well, I mean, you were obviously a widow after he died, right? I mean, that's kind of how it works. But if you became a widow, it would be very difficult for you to ever make a living. Most of the time in that culture, they had relied on their husband. That's just the way it was back then. So he made the money and you took care of the home. That's kind of the way it was. And if your husband died, the government wasn't going to help you. And so you were in real trouble. So a lot of times throughout the Bible, you see him, the Lord speaking to kings and is speaking to his people saying, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what, God, here's what I'm looking for. For somebody to say their heart is their heart is God's, their heart is mine. He says, what I'd like from you, for you is to seek justice, to seek mercy, to look after the orphans and the widows. And the reason he has to say that is, if you were an orphan or a widow in those days, you were in real big trouble. Often in those days, if you were orphaned or widowed, you didn't have any money. And so he, he told his people, you take care of the orphans. You take care of the widows. It was so important to God. So here is what happened. You had two groups of Jews because at this point, even though the gospel was open to everybody, the church didn't know that yet. They hadn't really caught on. We, I'm just so thankful that we can read the, about these guys and realize we're not the only ones who are slow to catch on to things. You know, like when Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again, it took him a long time to click on to that. It took him a while to click on to the fact that Jesus said, you're going to preach this gospel here in Jerusalem, in Judea in Samaria, and then you're going to preach it to the ends of the earth. And in their minds, they kind of thought, okay, 
we going to find more Jewish people at the ends of the earth? What they didn't realize is that through this new covenant, God was opening it up to everybody. And the scripture said the prophecies of old had said that this was going to be a light to the Gentiles. And that people didn't speak the same language would suddenly be proclaiming the praises of God. But at that time, they didn't know that. So you really didn't have any non-Jewish people as part of the church. You had folks that converted to Judaism from other, other nations, but they were all Jewish people who were saying Jesus is the Messiah. It wasn't until much later when Peter had a vision from God about Cornelius that the, an Italian guy, a, a nice spaghetti-loving Italian guy, probably didn't love spaghetti. You know, they didn't even have tomatoes in Italy at that time, but a nice Pasta-loving Italian boy became the first Gentile to really be embraced into the church. So at this point, they got two groups of Jews. You had your good old born-in-Judea Hebrew-speaking Jews, or Aramaic at least. And then you had another group. These were called the Hellenistic Jews, and, and our Greek friends will be able to tell you when you hear the word Hellenistic, it, hidden in that is the word just like their granddaughter, Eleni, which, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, but it means Greek, okay? So you had Hellenistic Jews that were considered Greek Jews. These were the sophisticated Jews. These were the ones that had uh, kind of adopted the new Greek culture when the Seleucids came in, or maybe they were still immigrating from other places. And so these guys, these two groups, even though they were both Jewish, they didn't really play along, play together well. I mean, they didn't hate each other or anything. They just didn't hang out. You know how that is? You ever see that in the church? Where we say, you know, this is my brother, this is my sister, but we don't see each other outside of church. I found that whenever God moves in a mighty way, those walls go down. When we start to get stagnant and we start to get stale in our belief, we start to get, you know, formulaic about it, we lose a bit of that relationship with God, we start building tribes and, and factions, and we say, this is my group, and we like the same things, we listen to the same music, we're the same age. But when God moves in a great way, those walls come down, and you find everybody mixing again. Well, you had the Greek Jews and the, and the Jewish Jews, I guess you'd call them the Hebrew Jews, they were a little bit separate. They were still going to church together. Well, we see this today, right? We go to church together. I sit right down the road from them, but ask them their names or their kids' names, and you have no clue. Well, that was the way it was then. And something happened because the church was doing very well at taking care of the widows. But understand this. It's hard to take care of somebody's needs when you don't know they have a need. And if you're not talking with them, how are you going to know they have a need? If you're not hanging out, how are you going to know they have a need? How are you going to know they have a gift? And so here's what happens in the book of Acts chapter 5. It says, sorry, chapter 6, my, my fault. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. It doesn't say that people were picking favorites or people saying, we don't like those guys. We're not going to give them any of our food. They were being overlooked. They were being overlooked because they weren't, you know, hanging out as much. They didn't, you know, they kind of kept in their groups. So they were saying, look, our widows aren't getting fed like your widows are getting fed. So the 12, this is the 12 apostles, they summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Do you see what they're saying? 
They're saying, hey, we were, we're, we're supposed to be preaching here. We're supposed to be seeking the Lord here. And we've been worrying about little, like, who's getting fed and, and all this little business stuff. And there are some people in the church, that's their gift. They're saying, that's not our gift. We're supposed to be preaching the word. And we're kind of caught up in all this little business stuff. So here's what they say. We're neglecting the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you. Now, they're talking to the Hellenistic Jews here. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Does that mean they're more spiritual than the other guys? Because what did it say about the other guys? They got to be full of the spirit. We will devote ourselves to the ministry, to prayer, and the ministry of the word. They're just recognizing we've got different calls here. We've got different gifts. Our job is to be preaching the word and to be praying. So we need somebody else to take this role up. And so this is what happens. In verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought these before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Stop for a second. Let's just see what happens here. This is our first glimpse at what we call today deacons. Now, some of you came from church backgrounds. Some of you came from traditional backgrounds. Some of you just got born again recently, and this is all new to you. Some of you had to unlearn some things because of old church patterns. Because you realized the old church patterns weren't exactly the Bible patterns, and they kind of messed you up. One of those things is the role of a deacon. Now, we can all have a little bit of a different view of what that role might be. One thing we see here in the scripture is that these seven they were to take care of some of the matters that didn't involve them necessarily grabbing a microphone and preaching. I mean, some, it was just very practical stuff. People needed to get fed. Business needed to be handled. You know what's wrong with the way we've interpreted it, though? We, in the modern church, have taken the idea of deacons and said they need to be good business people because they're going to be doing business. And so the deacons are the businessmen, and the elders are the spiritual ones, and we, we kind of separate the two worlds. But do you see anywhere here where it says the deacons need to be good business people? No. What do they need to be? Full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And that wisdom is not, well, I learned a lot running my business. The wisdom he's talking about is the wisdom of God. The book of James says there's two very different wisdoms. It says the wisdom from God, which is pure and it's holy, and there's a wisdom from the earth, and it's natural and it's demonic, he says. Here's the deal. They are in a, a move of God where people, the widows are getting fed, the poor are getting taken care of, and somehow the money's not running out even when they're persecuted. I mean, they're losing business at some places because they're professing Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that at some point in Jerusalem, people started seizing their property. And yet nobody's poor. People are getting taken care of. Needs are being met. 
And I'll tell you, that didn't come because somebody just had a really bright business mind. You know who was running it before these seven were chosen? Fishermen. There was one tax collector. Maybe he had some clues. But I tell you, I think all these guys had to lay down what they knew and had to ask God, what do you want us to do? What's your idea here? See, we've created this world. I even heard somebody say this, and it was like the dumbest thing I've heard in a while. But you don't know who it is, so you'll never know. (laughs) So don't even try to guess. You're like, who might that have been? You'll never guess. But this person said, well, tell you what. And he was talking to a preacher. And he said, I won't tell you how to preach or how to pray. You don't tell me how to run my business. And his idea was, when we're at church, it's spiritual time, and we can be spiritual. When I'm at my business, that's what I know. I'm a business guy. I know how to run that. But I'm going to tell you, once we became born again, those, those divisions went away. You don't have a separate life. You have the Holy Spirit wanting to lead you and guide you in everything. And what they needed here was the wisdom of God and the grace of God to get it done. And when I'm talking about the grace of God, I'm not saying, you know, oops, I made a mistake. The grace of God covers it up. No, I'm talking about the power of God, the enablement, the anointing of God, the favor of God. Stuff was working that shouldn't have worked. Money was going further. They were seeing, in reality, something very similar to when Jesus fed the 5,000. He fed, he had very little, and yet it never ran out, and he kept feeding and feeding, and there was more than enough. In fact, there was more left over than when they started. See, these disciples had seen Jesus multiply food for 5,000 men and their families. Then they saw him do it for 4,000 men and their families. Then they saw him do things like they're fishing. They haven't caught anything all night. And then he comes out in the middle of the day, which is the worst time to fish, And tells them to cast their net on the other side. Now how big is their boat that the fishing is going to be that different from this side to that side? We're not talking about an aircraft carrier here, even if we were. I mean, how big is the boat? It's a small boat. It's not a big boat. But he says, cast it on the other side. And they're smart enough to say, okay, Lord, if you say so. And when they do cast it on the other side, the fish was, I mean, they were catching nothing on this side. When they obeyed the Lord, they caught so much fish that their nets began to break. This happened more than once. This was like Jesus' favorite thing to do with them. And they never learned. You know, well, they did learn because they said, yes, Lord, right away. But, I mean, this happened more than once. So they were familiar with a God that worked outside their wisdom. Peter's first experience with Jesus. Well, I mean, maybe his first experience was when his mother-in-law was healed. But his first major, you know, moment where Jesus said to follow me was when he was tired and he'd been fishing all night. And he came in and it was morning and Jesus was preaching on the shore and the crowd became so big that Jesus was backing up and backing up and he finally got against the water. Peter's out there cleaning his nets, him and his brother Andrew cleaning the nets. They're ready. Can you imagine fishing all night? You're cleaning your nets. You just want to sleep. I mean, we've had some of the guys, some of, some of you that are here, some of you that aren't, some of the folks that aren't here today who've come off the rigs, uh, you know, and have been working all night. And on a Sunday morning, they haven't gone to bed yet. And I've seen Josh, you know, go up and stand by the door with the ushers so he can stay awake and hear the word. 
And you know what it's like when, you're, when you're, you've worked all night. You just want to go home. Peter's cleaning his nets, and the Lord, Jesus says to him, let me in your boat, Peter. Peter says, okay. He says, shove out a little bit so I can preach. So Peter does. And Peter's got to, I mean, <laughs> Peter, I'm sure wants to go home, but, you know, he, it's more important is what this guy, he, he knows there's something real about Jesus. And so he does what he says, and he's got to kind of keep the boat in the same spot while Jesus is preaching. Because anybody who's ever been on a boat knows it doesn't just stay there. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe you got an anchor or something, but, you know, Peter's kind of takes it out a little bit, keeps it in the same spot, keeps it from swaying too much. And then when Jesus is done preaching, he goes, hey, Peter, let's go out for a catch. Peter goes, well, all right. He, 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 he first says, you know, I've been fishing all night. I caught nothing. That's the time to fish. That's when the fish are out. But he says, if you say so, Lord, I will. Jesus says, go out to the middle, go out to the deep. You might not know much about the sea that they were in at the time, but the best places to fish in that sea are on the are, is not in the middle, but it's closer to the to the to the shore to the uh, where the uh, water actually comes in because it, the water's got way more oxygen. The fish like that area, and they're sleeping in the day. They're not they're not moving around that much, so this is the worst place at the worst time. But that's where Jesus told them to go. So they go, and when Jesus says. Put out your nets for a catch. He catches more than he ever thought he could catch. He has to motion over to his friends. And I love that. He motions over to them because he doesn't want to yell because voices carry well over water. And if he yells, everybody will find this new awesome fishing spot. So he's like motions over to his bodies. Come on, help me because my, my boat's not big enough. This is his first experience with Jesus. Like real bonding experience. So I'm going to tell you for sure, when they start having to handle how to take care of money and how to take care of food and how to make sure everybody's taken care of, they've learned something valuable. God's way does not make sense, often. It just doesn't make sense. That's the worst place to fish. It's the worst time of day to fish. I'm not going to catch more fish on the right side than I caught on the left side. Peter, one time, Jesus is like, we need some money for taxes. And Peter's like, where are we going to get that? He goes, Peter, go fishing. Lord, we need more than a fish to pay our taxes. <laughs> Anita's back there. She's an accountant. You try to give her a dead fish and say, here's my, ta here, here's my income tax. Doesn't work. Didn't work then either. But he goes and <laughs> he goes, okay. Jesus tells us to do wacky things. He goes and catches a fish. Inside that fish is a, the right coin. Now, coins today are worth next to nothing, but at that time, coins were worth a lot. The coin that would pay the exact amount they needed for their taxes in a fish's mouth. So they've kind of learned God does things differently, and it doesn't always make sense. So what would be better for the early church? Hire seven guys that know how to run a good business but would rather, would rather not get too spiritual. Let's just, let's just use our education. Let's use our experience. Or do you want seven guys that have wisdom, but it's wisdom from God, and they're full of the Spirit? That's what you want. That's what you're looking for. I'm going to tell you right now, if you run your own business or if you work for somebody else, the examples in the Scripture are numerous. If you'll trust God, and you'll let him give, him give you his wisdom and his favor. Whatever you set your hand to will prosper. 
And you will be used by him in a great way. You're, go, you're not going to work for a paycheck. You're going to work because the Lord's put you in that position. That's your opportunity to be a light for him. Jesus told us that this is what it was going to be like. He said, I, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless I hear him say it. This is our life. This is not just our life at church. This is our life. The book of Ephesians tells us, hey, if this guy who used to steal from all the time, that was his thing that he did, says, let him work with his hands so that he'll have something to give to the guy who has need. Does he, you see what he told you his job was for? He doesn't say, let him work with his hands because he's got to do something with his hands or he's going to steal something. He's a klepto. Give him something to do. He says, let him work with his hands so he has something to give. Have you considered that that's what the paycheck is for? I got something to give now. God takes care of my needs. The paycheck doesn't take care of my needs. God takes care of my needs. I'm doing this for him. That's why I'm there. If you'll let him and his wisdom and his spirit go into it full of the spirit, full of his wisdom, I'm going to tell you things will be different. We've got to get rid of the separation that we've created. This is work life. This is spiritual life. It's all spiritual life. If you'll just let God be God at your workplace. Watch what he can do. This is a God who can do more than enough. Now, everybody in the, almost everybody in the room could get up right now and give a testimony and talk to us about how that's been real in their life. You just can't forget that. You know, there was a king in Israel's past. You see, when, when Israel first left Egypt, they didn't know much about war. They didn't know much about, they, they've been slaves. So they knew how to follow orders. They weren't soldiers. They weren't, um, you know, generals or anything. They had to fight some battles. And they won every battle they fought, which was amazing, except for a couple of them where they disobeyed the Lord. But they, they were this tiny little nation of slaves came out of Egypt and started whooping up on every tribe that came against them. It was pretty impressive. Do you know archaeological evidence seems to indicate that wherever place they conquered, technology went backwards a little bit. You know, they sang a song, Moses and Miriam sang a song, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord of God. Actually, they says, I'm mixing up two different songs, forgive me. But they said, you know, look at, the, look at what the horses and chariots did for the Egyptians. They said their riders have been tossed into the sea. And so... You see, when God is instructing them, they don't even know how to, like, make chariots. They don't know how to use the horses because they're slaves. I mean, that's just all they know. And so it, the Bible actually tells them, if you capture these chariots, here's what you do. You hamstring the horse so the horse gets to live, the horse gets to wobble around, but it can't be used to attack you again. They didn't know what to do with a horse if they caught one, so just make sure nobody else can use it. Now, you may not like that. I'm sorry. That's not a PETA-friendly message. But, you know, and I like horses too. I'd rather them be able to walk around. But they didn't kill the horse. In that day and age, that's very progressive, okay? So just accept it. But then something happened. There was a king. I mean, there was many things that happened before this. God just, no matter who came against them, God gave them wisdom and favor. Wisdom and favor. And they won. Whatever they were doing, they won. And then there was a king. He was 16 years old. His name was Uzziah. 16 years old, he becomes king of Israel. Can you imagine being king at 16? 
I was an idiot at 16. I can't imagine ever being, I can't imagine running a Burger King, let alone a nation. But King Uzziah says that he trusts in the Lord and the Lord helped him. And it talks about all these battles he won and, and the wells he dug. And it says that the Lord gave him wisdom and he gave people in his, in his administration skill. And they built these powerful towers of defense and siege weapons. They built all this stuff like new technology that they were so far behind. Now they've got all this stuff. And it says because he was marvelous, marvelously helped by the Lord. That's the phrase it uses in my Bible. Marvelously helped. God gave him inventions. God gave his people and his kingdom, just like he did when Solomon built the temple, gave them ideas. When Solomon built the temple, it says he filled the craftsmen, the builders, with, with a skill and wisdom. Stuff they didn't know how to do before, all of a sudden they knew how to do it. Because he was marvelously helped. Then what happened? He started to get real strong and he started to get proud. And it says that King Uzziah started to get so proud because he thought he did this. That he walked into the temple one day and he grabbed the incense and he started to take it before the Lord because he says, hey, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And the priest said, hey, the Lord said only priests are allowed to do that. And he said, no, nah, I'm the king. And as soon as he opposed them, he came down with leprosy like that. Because he started to believe he was the one. He was the hot shot. Instead of realizing it was God that was helping him the whole time. I want you to see something with that. Many of you start out, when you start out as a believer, you're just, you're just aware. Man, God, you've been so good to me. I can't do anything without you. Then you learn some things. He gives you ideas. He helps you. He gives you promotion. You start to think, if you're not careful, you start to think, look at me. Look what I can do. Look what I've done. Hey, I got this now. God, you can take a break. I know you've been helping me. I got this now. Step back. We're good. And then all of a sudden, what you see is the stuff that you built starts to fall apart because without God, it's nothing. Scripture says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. Unless God's on watch duty, the watchmen are wasting their time. They're staying awake for nothing. I want us to look in Proverbs. I'd like you to see what the Lord says as his voice of wisdom. Many of you might be familiar with this section of Scripture. It's a wonderful, wonderful section of Scripture. Proverbs 3.1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. See, that's what you're looking for. Favor in the sight of God. If you've got favor in the sight of God, you'll have favor in the sight of the right people at the right time. Doesn't mean everybody will like you. You're going to have, in fact, the scripture says, in order to please God, you're going to have to, be willing to not please other people. But when you need favor, you've got it. it. says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You hear that? Trust in him with all your heart. Not just a little bit, not just the parts you feel comfortable with. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
And do not lean on your own understanding. Do you know what happens when you do something enough? You know what happens when you've been in the business enough? You start to think you've got some understanding in it. And you start to lean on that understanding. He says, don't do that. He's not saying, you idiot, you don't have any understanding. He's saying, don't lean on what you know. Don't lean on what you think you've got a grasp on. Don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. When it says in all your ways, acknowledge him, that's not talking about some rapper at the Grammys who, who you know, had five music videos uh, of women doing terrible things and, and language that you couldn't repeat to your children. And then he gets up at the Grammys and says, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's not what he's talking about. Acknowledging God like, hey, I see you up there, big guy. Love you. <laughs> Sammy Sosa hitting a home run and pointing to the sky. That's not what he's talking about. That's easy. That's not real. What he's talking about is in every one of your ways, you look to him for direction. Amen. You look to him for his opinion rather than everybody else's opinion. God, what's your plan? The scripture calls it inquiring of the Lord. It says inquire of the Lord. He'll show you where to go. He'll put light on your path. He'll show you what you need to do in that moment. But he's saying in all your ways. You hear that? All your ways. Not just in your church stuff, not just in your Bible reading, not just in your prayer time, but in all of your ways. In everything you do, every moment at work, at school, in your relationships, in your family, in your parenting, whatever, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. Look to him for his direction. And he will make your paths straight. The things that are messed up and broken and twisted, they're all crooked in our lives. Often they're crooked because we tried to do it our own way. They're crooked because we thought we had the plan. But he says, he'll make your path straight. He'll make it clear for you where you're going and he'll make sure you can get there. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That fear does not mean that you're scared of God. It means that you honor him above everybody else. His opinion is the one that matters. More than your friends, more than your coworkers, his opinion is the one that counts. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body. Healing to your body, refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth. And from the first of all your produce, everything that comes out, everything you make, everything you do, honor him with the first, the best and the first. And it says, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That's powerful. This is a promise of God. This is not just like a, you know, a nice little thing we put on a pillow or a nice little magnet we put on the refrigerator. This is what the Lord says to us. We spend all of our time trying to find out what's spiritual and what's not. And I'm here to tell you, everything is spiritual. Everything is connected. God's looking to be a part, not just a part of your life, but to be the Lord of your life. There's an old saying that they used to say and used to actually sing it. It's in some old songs. But it still is true now as it was then. 
If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? What he's looking for is for you to give him everything, for you to trust him with everything. You say, what does God care about my business? What does God care about my workplace? He cares because you're there. He cares because you're there. You're his light. You're his ambassador there. You're his child. He cares. And so in the church and outside this gathering, God's not looking for people that have got all the things the answer's figured out because of their you know, school of hard knocks and their, their experience in life. He's looking for people that will say, I want your wisdom. I want your spirit. I want your power. And you know what? Those, those guys that ran the, the business stuff, the small stuff, they also didn't say, this is what I do, so I don't, I, I don't do spiritual stuff. I just do this stuff. They're still believers. In the next verse, it says that Stephen was full of the power of God and the spirit of God and faith. Full of faith in the spirit. That guy began to preach. And as he preached, people all over the place were getting saved. You say, it's not your job to preach, Stephen. It's your job to wait tables. Will Stephen understand something? Just because I'm doing a task that other people don't view as spiritual doesn't mean I stop being an ambassador for Jesus. Doesn't mean I've got to shut my mouth. I've got the word of God in me just like everybody else does. I'm going to preach the good news to whoever I come in contact with. You don't say, Stephen, that's for the apostles. The preachers do that. Oh, I, I mean, I wish we could just get rid of the notion that it's preachers. And we, I mean, I guess we could call them professional preachers, although, you know, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But, you know, we, we think that, you know, the, it's the pastors and the evangelists. These are the guys, that, you know, it's the guys that do this full time. They're the guys that are going to go out into the world and win the world to Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when you come in, those guys are there to equip you so you can go out and do ministry. Stephen understood. I might have a task that looks, looks normal, looks boring, looks unspiritual, but nothing is. And even though I'm doing this, doesn't mean I stop preaching the gospel. You know, we used to have, I remember a couple guys would come to my dad. My dad was pastoring. And they, they'd say, you know, uh, I just want to do something for the Lord. I just, whatever you want me to do, I just want to do it. He's like, okay, that ramp needs to be shoveled. Oh, no, I was, uh, I don't feel called to shovel the ramp. Who does? No, I was thinking something more like, would you guys be able to just uh, just let me, you know, just pray in a back room or what do you need? That's what we need. No, I don't know about that. You can pray while you shovel if that makes you feel better. <laughs> you put on music on your iPod. If that makes you feel more spiritual while you do it. Hey, you could be floating and shoveling. I don't care. It just needs to get done. It's not spiritual enough. Yeah, it is. And just because you're shoveling doesn't mean you can't go out and preach the gospel too. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing that's happening in, in our gathering. Um, I love to see what's happening amongst the children and even the toddlers. And you who teach toddlers, we're so blessed that you're doing it and teach the children. You know, it wasn't that long ago that people viewed that as just a babysitting thing. We're just babysitting the kids so that their parents can stay in the service. And that by itself would be a good thing. 
But I see these, I, I listen to these teachers and I see, their, I see what they're studying throughout the week and they're going down and ministering to those kids and that's powerful. They're not taking it as, well, this just needs to get done. They're taking it as, this is my ministry and I'm going to let God do it through me. And if a toddler needs Jesus, if a toddler needs someone to love that, that toddler, if a toddler needs to get healed, whatever, we're here. That's amazing. We got to get rid of the separation we've created. Everything that you do is meant to be filled with the power of God and the Spirit of God. We got to get rid of this attitude. Will you keep your spiritual life to yourself? I'll keep my business life to myself. There's no such separate thing. Everything, everything is meant to be filled with Him. And I thank God the church, we'll, we'll read this next week, but I'll tell you, the church, the early church was turned upside down by those seven guys. They were picked because somebody needed to make sure widows were getting fed. Those seven guys turned the church upside down. One of them became the first martyr. One of them became the first missionary outside of Jerusalem. Those guys changed the course of the church, and they just did what needed to be done at the time. Sometimes God's looking for people who are willing to do whatever needs to be done. Not to say this isn't important, because it is important. Everything that we do for him is important, and it's just as valuable. And that person cleaning the bathroom downstairs is just as valuable to God as the person preaching the message. We're the body of Christ. We work together. In fact, here's what the scripture says. That person doing the job that nobody pays attention to, it says God gives them more honor than the one who gets the applause. That's a real thing. God's, there's some people we never expect. They're going to get some awards in heaven we have no idea about. Because they were faithful in what God gave them to do. And they did it as unto the Lord as worship. Can you imagine scrubbing the floor as worship? But I believe we can all do that. God wants to get involved in your business. God wants to get involved at your workplace. God wants to speak to you there. You don't just turn your ears on when you get home or when you come to church. God wants to lead you and guide you. Some of you already have amazing stories of how he's done just that. But I believe you're the head and not the tail. I believe you're above only and not beneath. And I believe that if you acknowledge him in everything, he's going to make sure your paths are straight. Amen? Let's stand up together. Thank you, Jesus. You're so good to us. Lord, I thank you that uh, you haven't just we've pushed you out of certain areas of our life because we thought we had. Lord, remind us and enable us to say everything we do is meant to be as worship. Everything we do is meant to be done in the power of God. Everything we do, we are called to, we're anointed for. That you've set us apart for a purpose and a task, and we're going to do it with all our hearts. Lord, when we go to work and we work with people that might not be the most pleasant, help us to love them as you love them. Lord, as we, uh, for those of those, those of those here who own businesses and, and are constantly asked to make decisions that border questions of ethics and they don't know, you know, this is, this is what's acceptable in the business world, but I'm a child of God now and I can't live like that anymore. Give them the courage to hold true to what you've taught them, to hold true to their convictions and not back down. Lord, you bless their business because of it. You bless them. Lord, our goal is not the paycheck. Our goal is not the same as the world's goals. We seek your kingdom. We seek your righteousness. And we know that all those other things will be added to us. We seek you, Lord. 
And as we seek you, I know we're going to find you. We're going to find you in places we didn't even expect to find you. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys very much. God bless you. Have a great week.